Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Om Shabbat Shalom. Holy way of the Most High. Om Shabbat Shalom. I sense your presence. Om Shabbat Shalom. Holy way of the Most High. Om Shabbat Shalom. I sense your presence. I sense your presence. And I am the light within your soul. In the essence of truth and right, love makes the circle whole. And here we stand in line, waiting for some sacred sign. But to find the balance is the purpose of this time. To restore the balance of the universal mind. In the presence of my Lord of light and love Everything I see aspiring to be free And when I call to thee And come on bending knee Surrender to the all-pervading light and love Reflections of the one surrounding me with love And I sense your presence I sense your presence I sense your presence I sense your presence Within and without Above and below, yeah East, West, North, and South, I sense your presence. Without and within, below and above, yeah, yeah. East, West, North, and South, I sense your presence. I sense your presence. Within your soul 
essence of truth and right Love makes the circle whole And when I call to thee And come on bending knee Surrender to the all-pervading light and love Reflections of the one surrounding me with love For to find the balance is the purpose of this time Restore the balance of the universal mind I sense your presence I sense your presence I sense your presence I sense your presence Om Shabbat Shalom Holy way of the Most High Om Shabbat Shalom I sense your presence Om Shabbat Shalom Holy way of the Most High Om Shabbat Shalom I sense your presence Om Shabbat Shalom Holy way of the Most High Om Shabbat Shalom I sense your presence Om Shabbat Shalom Holy Angel of the Most High Om Shabbat Shalom I sense your presence I sense your presence Thank you for joining here on Nascipating Compassion Radio. My name is Jesse Ann Nichols-George and I'm your host today. The music you were listening to at the beginning of the show is I Sense Your Presence. That's by Shemshai. And you definitely check out more of their music. They've got a lot of great music going on. Um, Shemshai, of course, is a group that I met many, many years ago in Sedona, Arizona, while I was uh, living in the Phoenix area. And uh, they sent now and put out many CDs beyond <laughs> what I knew back then and are traveling the world and you can catch up with all of their work, by the way, at www.shemshai.com, S-H-I-M-S-H-A-I.com. And I just want to extend a welcome to everybody who's here listening in today, um, those that are either joining us for the very first time or those that are returning because they love what we do here and what we're talking about. And if you hear a little noise in my background, yeah, I'm kind of working from the Starbucks office today. <laughs> and, and that's okay. we got an early show running today. Uh, I do want to mention that we're going to start stabilizing the times again on the show. Uh, for the next several months, you're going to find most of the shows are going to be scheduled at 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time, and that's going to be 3.30 Central, 2.30 Mountain Time, and 1.30 p.m. Uh, Pacific Standard Time. And uh, hopefully most of those times I should be able to book into a nice quiet room, and uh, that's going to be helpful as well. So... Uh, looking forward to getting that going. And uh, we do, by the way, stream live in three additional places, Talkstream Live, StreamFinder, and Pen, also known as Parent Counters Network. And I welcome everybody listening through those channels, as well as those that are catching our podcasts at iTunes, TuneIn.com, and through my YouTube channel. So uh, lots of options to catch a show, even if you miss any part of it. Here at Activating Compassion Radio, what I do is I look at the different areas um, of our lives that have compassion in it, the different ways that compassion exists in our lives, how to remove 
our blocks, our resistances, our frustrations, and all kinds of things along those lines. Some weeks I'm discussing different aspects of how compassion's in our life, how it affects our life, the different areas of compassion, and then some weeks I'm doing more exercises and practical implementations, and most of the time I have really great guests on the show. Today is going to be really interesting and different than many of the other people that I've had on, but still some common ties there at the same time, and I've also got some um, maybe some people that are a little more noted that have been around the teleseminar circuit a bit too coming up during the summer and early fall for you. And then also I oftentimes have musical guests on the show. I've had Stephen Halpern, Peter Cater on in the past, um, Bruce Tugarelli, Claire Hedin, Joe Matson, just a whole realm, Craig Corrales, uh, let's see here. And then this year I, I kind of changed it up and I'm bringing my musical guests on uh, in coordination with the turnings of the year. So that's that's been really fun. We had Woven Green on for the spring equinox um, for May Day. I had Angelia Grace, who called in from Ireland. And then we had um, Dragon's Head on for the summer solstice. I've got Shashika Maroof, who's going to be calling in from India, coming up in the first week of, of August. So you'll have that look to look forward to. And, yeah, just some really interesting different variety of things that are going to play in there. So also a little reminder, if um, uh, in my own work, what I do, for those who aren't familiar with me yet, uh, is I focus on helping people find and use compassion in their everyday lives. I've created the Genesis Clearing Statement. And on my website, you'll actually uh, find where other people have interviewed me, and we've used that statement on the show. Uh, I've authored four books. The most recent are You, Me, Life, Dreams, and its companion workbook, and then my first two books, Activating Compassion and its companion workbook, and then I've also created the Compassion Tour, which is a multi-state nationwide tour, including workshops, retreats, seminars, book signings, all kinds of things going on with that. Um, I'm on and off tour at the moment. I'm taking a little time out and spending some time in my own home region of Falls, South Dakota, which has been really fun hanging out at the waterfalls and taking some hikes around the area, and I'm going to be doing and building some things in this area, and then I'm going to be branching out and um, getting into some different regions around the country um, from time to time on the weekends and things like that. So a lot to look forward to. You can follow all of those things on my website, Jesse and Nichols George. Dot event, uh, not dot event, right? It's just the end, Nichols George, <laughs> the number one dot com. Boy, I'm mixing a couple of things up there today. Just a reminder, by the way, if you do enjoy the show today, make certain that you share it with people. Tell other people about it. You know, you never know whose life is going to get inspired. Uh, you never know whose life is going to be changed by what you have to share. And, and I think our guest today has got some really great things to share, and it's going to be really, really interesting. I think it's going to be a show that you want to share. And they can always find it in the archives. They can use the same link that you use to get in the show. They can go to my page on the Main Street Universe tab on my website, find it there. They can listen to it through iTunes, through TuneIn.com, and then again on my YouTube channel. I say give me two weeks to get the show up uh, on my YouTube channel, but a lot of times I do get it up within a couple of days. Um, so, uh, you know, that's, that's always other options for people as well for listening. Now, before we get started on everything, those that have listened in before know that 
I'd like to give a little insight for the week, and it comes from a book called The 72 Names of God by Yehuda Burke, who is a Kabbalah master. And I like Yehuda's work because he takes the big complex things and he puts it into everyday language. And this, by the way, is also on my page of the Main Street Universe tab, where you can go back and reflect on it throughout the week, which I like to do that with different things, kind of grab a thought for the week and then run with that and see how it's playing into my life that week. And and that's fun because I just open, I just go through the book page by page, but it always seems to fit in one way or another. So it's going to be interesting to see if our guest finds any kind of a tie with, with this little insight here today. So the common name of God that we have today uh, for the show is Prophecy in Parallel Universes. And this is, I find this very interesting. And he goes on the little message he starts off with is, a prophet is not someone who sees into a predestined future. Indeed, there is no predestined future because we have the ability to recreate the future at every moment. Therein lies the purpose of this name. And the insight he goes on to provide on this is, there are countless futures, all of which exist at the same time. That's right. Ancient Kabbalists and temporary physicists agree parallel universes are a reality. According to physics, the moment we make a decision, the universe splits, and our alternative decision and fate branch out into another reality. According to Kabbalah, parallel universes, parallel universes grow progressively more orderly, eventually reaching a world of paradise, happiness, and unending life. However, our own behavior determines which universe we enter. Ego-driven actions keep us imprisoned in a universe of chaos. But the moment we resist our reactive responses, we make a quantum jump into an entirely different reality. Each new universe features a more fulfilled version of our lives. By recognizing opportunities to end reactive, egocentric behavior, we literally move from one world to another. Prophecy is the ability to spot these opportunities. Prophecy is seeing the future in our present action, seeing the consequences of reactivity versus the vast rewards that proactive behavior brings. And it's interesting because as I was you know, reading that little section in there, and I was thinking about our guest today um, who, who wrote the book Life of Muslims from the War Zone. And I, it was really triggering in how people who continue to perpetuate war come from these very ego-driven actions. And they do keep those chaos going along the way. And yet he's going to share, I'm sure, during the show, some of his experiences. And when I read his book, there were times that it would have been very easy for him to react under various situations and to panic and to be in that ego-driven space, but he didn't make that choice. He became proactive. He thought about numerous people, and he didn't react in the situation, and it did create a much more favorable outcome for him, obviously, because he's here to talk about it today with us. Now, the meditation that Yehuda gives on this is, the power of prophecy is bestowed upon you. With your consciousness elevated and your awareness heightened, you have the power to enter a new universe of transformation and light. 
And again, the common name of God that we're working with this week is Prophecy and Parallel Universes. And the formal name that Yehuda provides us is Hey Yud Yud. And again, you can find that on my page, the Main Street Universe tab, on my website, jessianniclesgeorge.com. And if you hear some noise going on in the background, be a little patient with me because I know it's there. (laughs) I know it can get a little noisy. It's not too bad today. But um, I will be muting my mic on and off uh, during the show so that you can hear our guests quite clearly and and get all the great information he'll have to share with you. So a little thought here before we go on break, and this is just going to lead into our show today and give you a little something to see where we're taking the topic today. Have you ever firsthand lived in an area where you are under constant alerts of attack? Have you ever been in the lines of battle, grateful that you just made it through another day? And have you ever thought about what it would be like to have to leave your home and everything you have on a moment's notice in order to stay alive? Unfortunately, many of us have not been through the experience of living in a war zone. And most of us come and go from our homes each and every day without a thought about being forced Uh, out without anything. And we take oftentimes for granted that we are safe and will be undisturbed within the four walls where we live and we rest and spend a good portion of our lives. And what I find interesting about war zones is that there are so many lessons that can be learned from that lifestyle. Now, I don't condone war, nor do I find it to be a solution to things. However, there is no doubt that one senses how prone to be in overdrive and that there is an aspect of having to think on one's feet on a moment's notice. It brings home some very real things that make us realize the value of life and the importance of living each day in its fullest. It reminds us of how fragile life can be and how easily it can be taken. And it reminds us that peacefulness and safety is not what all people are living in today. And while we would like to put war as a thing of the past, recent times show that it is alive and active as ever. And we are constantly reminded of the violence that is happening in various areas of the world. It reminds us of the lengths people are willing to go to in order to have a sense of control, power, or to protect their possessions. Now, Robert Obel is one person who has lived this firsthand, and he had not only his own self to care for in this process, but had an entire parish to be concerned with, and he knows what it's like to drive through land where bullets are flying and to have a gun placed to his head and to live day after day having his villages rampaged and seized. And his life stories bring many lessons, not just about living in a war zone, but parallels to everyday life. For many, just being out in the world or their work environment is like being in a war zone. It brings home the fundamental value of learning to not get too attached to things. Enjoying the moment, living the day, yet be flexible to change your plans as needed. What war zones have you been through in your life? And how would you feel not being able to sleep through the night for fear of having your home barged into. 
And how have you dealt with those times where you felt constantly under attack by people and or situations in your life? This week, we're focusing on a component of compassion that's related to the aspect in my book that making a difference. And this reminds us to take, you know, and be aware and take advantage of opportunities to be of service. I'm going to take a short break, and when we return, I'm going to have Dr. Robert Goebel with me, and we're going to be looking at his work, Life and Lessons from a War Zone. And I've got two songs for you during our break, because they're, they're each kind of short today, so, <laughs> so you get two songs. Hidden Pain will be the first one, and There's an Ache will be the second one. They're both by Claire Hedin, and you can check out more of Claire's work on her website, www.clairehedin.com. That's C-L-A-R-E-H-E-D-I-N.com, and we'll be back shortly. Love 
Welcome back. You are listening to Activating Compassion Radio. My name is Jesse. I'm Nicole George, and I'm your hostess today. Um, you were just listening to a couple of songs by Claire Hedin. The first one was Hidden Pain, and the second one was There is an Ache. You can definitely check out more of Claire's work at www.clairehedin.com. And, uh, you know, this is... Uh, um, I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> totally in there. I do want to apologize. I do have a little background noise here running today. Um, and I do want to let you know I'm going to mute my mic on and off uh, during the process of the show so that you're not getting some of that background noise uh, while he's talking and you can hear him better uh, during that process. So I, I just realized, too, I was running a little bit late. I must have gotten a little long-winded at the beginning of the show on things, so I apologize for that as well. So we're going to be moving on to our guest today, and today I have with me Dr. Robert Fogel, who completed his training for the Catholic priesthood in his home country of Uganda and was ordained a priest on August 18, 2001. After his ordination to the priesthood, he was immediately assigned to work in Pashul Parish, and I hope I'm pronouncing these correctly. He can always correct me once he gets on here. Of three years he served in the parish, he experienced only five months of peace. The Life and Lessons from a War Zone is a memoir that has taken Dr. Ogle three years to write, and in it, he discusses the events that occurred almost on a daily basis during the time of unrest in Pashul and northern Uganda in general. And above all, he shares the enduring lessons that he has learned about life and himself from working in such an environment. Dr. Robert Nioko Ogle resides in Kansas City, Kansas, and he is a spiritual care provider to the sick. 
We will be looking at the life and lessons learned by Dr. Ogle while living in a war zone. And you can connect with him through LinkedIn. Uh, just go on to his pro- uh, profile, Dr. Robert Ogle, which is spelled O-B-O-L. And um, I'm going to get his mic opened up here in just a moment here. I do want to share with you, I did read his book, and it's really an amazing book to read because there are so many times when you read a memoir and you think, oh, that's great. They're sharing their experiences. They're sharing their life and uh, these various things, but you don't always get to feel like you're really in the story. And I I started off, matter of fact, I have to admit, it took me, I think it was three years (laughs) to get to his book. And I started off not certain if it was going to be something that I would enjoy or not. In all honesty, when I first looked at it, I'm like, yeah, I'm not really into the whole war thing. But, you know, he'd asked me to read it and give my thoughts on it. And so very early on in the book, what I found is I found myself really engaged. And I found myself drawn into the story that he was telling. And he shares so much detail of the memories and the feelings and his observations and um, and those experiences and thoughts that he went through can be really hard to grasp if you're not living that experience of a war zone. And yet he still found a way to make the reader feel as if they knew exactly what his experiences were. And I'm really grateful that he was willing to share his journey and that he's here with us today uh, to share his journey because I learned a lot from his book and I could see how the things he talked about in the book had many parallels to everyday life and life experiences. So, Robert, welcome to Activating Compassion Radio. It's a pleasure to have you here, and I've been looking forward to this for months. Yes, and thank you for having me on your show today. I've been looking forward to it. (laughs) And you have been through a lot in your life, and I, so I'm so excited to have you sharing your experiences today. I would love for you to start off by sharing uh, with us kind of what led you to go, yeah, let me write a memoir as opposed to maybe another type of book or, uh, you know, what made you feel really compelled to even put a book out um, on all of these different experiences. So I I come from the part of Uganda that is the northern part of Uganda and we had insecurity from the year 1988 to the year 2006 and we we grew up as children in it we became adults and began to work in that environment. And my desire to write a memoir was motivated by the fact that I wanted people to know exactly what is the day-to-day life in a war situation. Because most times when people hear about war, they hear about explosions, they hear about killings, violence. But I wanted a reader to get a sense of what it means to live in that environment. And I think that that is a powerful thing. And I found 
you depicted that very well because when when I first kind of looked at the book, I was like, oh, this is going to be maybe boring. <laughs> I have to admit, I have to say, you know, before you open the cover, you know, I kind of had my thoughts like, okay, you know, how how much can you cover? I mean, this is a good-sized book. It's not like, you know, a, a tiny, thin little paperback like my compassion books are. Mm-hmm. You, you need some time to really delve into this book, and you need to be in a space where you can really absorb uh, the thoughts that you're sharing here. And I found, I found it very interesting. So I, I would love for you to share some of the different things because, for example, when you were growing up, before mm-hmm. you entered the priesthood, uh, I remember you sharing a, a piece in the book that, um, you know, even as a child, you were you were in living in a kind of war zone, and you used to just sleep <laughs> right through things. And you have cultural practices about that. Maybe you can share some of that. Yeah, that was in fact that was the year. 1985, and 1985 was a year that was so unstable. The military had taken over government, and then the rebels were actually in the process of defeating the military. So there was always that the presence of instability the presence of attacks. And then, in that environment, I was a child. So what would happen was, I would go to bed, I'd sleep, and not wake up, you know. And uh, when the gunshots would start, my father especially wanted to, or ran out of the house, but then the problem was with me now, the child, because the son was asleep. And since the son was asleep, he couldn't wake me up. Because in our culture, is when somebody is asleep, like when gunshots are being fired, that person is not woken up. Because there is a belief that maybe it is one God protecting that person that has made the person be asleep at this time. And of course also, in the culture, people would not like to take responsibility that the person was asleep and woken up. And after being woken up, this person or something happened or the person was killed. So people respect a person sleeping. And also, we expect that an attacker ought to have the decency to respect the person who was asleep. So it was in this environment of chaos. As a child, whenever gunshots started, I couldn't wake up. So that is how you find in two places in the book, instead of waking up or taking refuge somewhere, I just continue to sleep. And that that is something because you, it didn't happen just once to you. It happened multiple times <laughs> to you, and mm-hmm. I'm sure you know your parents must have been thinking, you know, 
what do we do in this situation? You know, what, <laughs> we we can't all stay here on one hand, and we don't really want to just leave you there, but, you know, according to the culture. And, and this is something that is a hard enough choice uh, to make, you know, without the cultural practices, but then when you bring in that kind of cultural belief, the level of, you know, I see this huge level of trust uh, coming mm-hmm. out. I mean, right there is this huge lesson of of trust that you're going to be okay if they leave and that oh, they're going to that, be able to connect with you again. Yes, that is very true. But also I think uh, my sleeping a couple of times, is, I, I think it's highlighted also in one of the themes in the, of the book, that when we hear of a war situation, life continues, you know. But the difference in a war situation is everything that people do, there is risk as part of it, you know. One wakes up in the morning, to do an activity, there's a risk. One would like to travel, there's a risk. One would like to go to bed, there's a risk. And that is very, very characteristic of life in a war zone. And, you know, it's interesting because most of us have a risk involved each and every day, but we don't see it in front of our faces the way you do when you're living in that war zone as you grew up in, as you spent a lot of time in. And... You know, most of us could say, well, I mean, you, you you look at anything, whether it's 9-11 or even just an ordinary day, you know, how many times do you, somebody walk out the door and they don't return home? Or, uh, you know, we don't realize the risk that we take every day because we just, I think particularly here in America, we get very complacent because we're not having to deal with those types of things a lot of time. Um where we're face-to-face with it. But it brings up a good point. If we realize the the risk that we're taking each and every day, it seems to me like it can also bring you back around to value life and to value the moments of peace <laughs> that you get so much more. Now, like in my situation, I was a pastor in that parish called Pajule. Your pronunciation was really close. <laughs> the parish is called Pajule. And uh, to do just ordinary daily activities, there was a risk involved. If I woke up in the morning, my schedule was to have mass or a service with my parish community. So before I got out of the house, the question I asked myself is, or was the place safe? So I had to make sure that the place was safe. Then if I went to church and began to have mass, 
and to ask myself, will I have the safety for that 30 minutes or one hour? That was something that I always asked myself. Then, since the parish was large, I also had what we called outstations. If I was to think of to go to an outstation, that maybe was like five to ten minutes away. I had to ask myself, is the road safe? You know? And many times, I had no answer to the question. And because I did not have an answer to the question, in order to decide to go to a place, I had to ask myself, how do I feel like today? Because a lot what I came to discover in this war environment, our bodies used to speak to us. We felt things. If I did not have any information about the safety of a road, but I was not panicking, I was calm, that was the sense that it was okay for me. If I felt nervous, then I would not travel. And that is how many times we made decisions, how we felt, what our feelings told us. That one simple question is so powerful. Um, so many times we get these little instinctual things happening. We don't pay attention to them. We don't um, take heed to them. And we're not conscious of how we're feeling. But I know after reading your book, you frequently ask that <laughs> throughout the day. Oh, yes. How am I feeling? How am I feeling about traveling to this place? How am I feeling about stepping out of the house today? And and it really makes me think how often, you know, in our lives we get complacent and we don't stop and say, how am I feeling about this situation or being in this place or doing this thing. And there's such a vast amount of information in that. I, be, I believe so. I believe so. I think for the time I was in that place, my body, if I look back, warned me about what was coming. But I would not get like uh, that clarity that, okay, this is exactly what's going to happen. And I believe that in the events of the major things we go through in life, if we look back, there were some signs or indications. And and, and this instinct, it literally saved your life more than once, or I should say asking this question save not only your life, but the lives of other people um, along the way. Can you can you share one of those experiences where, you know, it did make a difference for you? Oh, yes, I, I do remember one time. 
I, I had to go to the district headquarters, and the district headquarters was about 15 minutes away. It is called Pade District Town Headquarters. So, because I was the only priest in the area, one of my duties was also to go and meet non non-governmental organizations and inform them of the needs in the camps because we had about 30,000 people displaced in the area of the parish. So I wake up in the morning. I planned to travel, but I felt very nervous and tense. But I had to go. So I leave the I leave the parish, and then I told the told the people I was leaving that I have this journey to make, but I don't feel good about it. So I traveled for about like five minutes from the parish. I come to a village called Paiula. Then I saw a military truck on the road. And then I get puzzled. I say now. Is this, have they been attacked? But I've not had any gunshots. So I get closer. I meet soldiers. They're equally tense because their vehicle had broken down in a risky place. <laughs> so I tried to pass them. They didn't talk to me. I went to district headquarters, had a discussion with district leaders. And they were asking me the question about how safe the road was. I couldn't tell them that the road was safe, but I just told them that I managed to get through. So then I came back to the town, that is for the district town headquarters, where the office of the Catholic Charities was located. Then a very nice gentleman, whenever I came to that place, always took me for lunch. Then I told him, I said, I won't have lunch today. Something is telling me that I have to go. Now, in, in African culture or Ugandan culture, having a meal is a sign of brotherhood or sisterhood. Most of the time, we don't turn it down. But I said I have to go. And he understood, so I left. So I reached again the area of Paiula. I was somehow tense. But then I saw grass burning. But then I said, no, rebels cannot burn the grass. They need the grass for their camouflage. So I continued. Then I met two young men who were riding bus, who were riding their bascos. I say hi to them, and then I come back to the parish. Then as soon as I arrived at the parish, Somebody, one of the social workers, because we had um, a reception center for child soldiers, one of the social workers comes and said, Father, how did you manage to get through? Five minutes ago, on the road you have just passed, some people were abducted. I said, I have no explanation, but I'm here. Since I was tired, I decided to have a rest. So in the evening when I woke up, I got information that uh, 
the two men who are riding bascos had actually been killed by the rebels. They were stabbed actually to death. And uh, when I had that, all I'd been thinking about in the morning came back to mind, and I felt my body had been telling me something. And in my refusing to have lunch, I believe something was telling me, please, you better leave if you are to reach a destination. The unfortunate thing is that the two young men that I met on the road did not make it. And, you know, this is just one sample or one story that you share in the book. And, you know, again, so many of us think, oh, there's no reason for us to pay attention to that feeling. We, you know, how many times do people get caught up in that aspect of I need to honor and be respectful to what's going on with this person and what's happening instead of listening to I need to go. And I know from my time of being on the road, people oftentimes will ask me, well, when are you going to be here or when are you going to be there? And I say, you know, I don't really know (laughs) because sometimes I get to a place and I get that message, I shouldn't Mm -hmm. stay here. And then sometimes I get to that place and it's like, oh, I need to spend some more time here. Um, and, and it really is that thing. I, I, matter of fact, when I was traveling last fall, uh, oftentimes I'll stay in rest stops or different places when I'm touring. And uh, I got into Massachusetts, and I just didn't feel safe at the rest stops. And I thought, well, that's really odd. So I went and found someplace else to be. And when I connected with the people I was there to connect with the next day, they go, oh, yeah, things happen at the rest stops all the time. You don't ever want to be there. <laughs> so uh, I could definitely relate to that aspect, and it brings in a, a big piece of where you also were observing the situations and the surroundings. And I think a lot of times we don't stop and take that moment to pause and really observe you know, what is the time of day and, and what meets with the environment we're in and what is most likely to happen? And I'll let you share on that. Yeah. And, and, of, and, of course, one of the things that uh, living in a war situation exposes one to is a broader understanding of insecurity. Now, a lot of us, when we think of insecurity, we think of a place that is unsafe, which is part part, part true. But in in a war environment, insecurity is a place that is, it talks about a place being unsafe. But also it points to the reality that there is nothing that a person can trust or count on. I 
have a, an interesting experience. One evening, I received information that uh, the rebels had attacked a nearby town, and they were coming to the place to where we were. So that evening, I was feeling so tense. But then I said, oh, let me go out and talk to the soldiers who were guarding the parish. And I did not want to tell them exactly how I felt, but I thought that in my conversation, I would get something that would I would grab onto, make me feel strengthened. So I asked the soldier, I said, you man, you heard of the attack today. Are you taking any precautions to keep us safe? And the soldier pointed to his gun and said, Father, you see, these guns will not protect us in this place. The only thing that will protect us is God himself. Now, this was an interesting answer that a soldier telling a priest, yet the priest should have known better because the work of the priest is to encourage people to rely on God at all the times. And so that was, insecurity was a major part of our lives. So like if it came to evening, we're afraid, we're not sure if we spend the night safely. In fact, what would happen was we would get whole families, the house, to go and sleep like in the nearby bushes. And if they were going to sleep in nearby bushes, they would actually meet government soldiers who were guarding the place. And the government soldiers would bring them back in the house. And as soon as the government soldiers got in the house, this family would go somewhere else, you know. So that there was that constant dynamic, constant tension. The fact that you find there wasn't anything to to count on. Most of the police had left the place. The soldiers who were to guard the place people did not also believe that they would protect and keep them safe. It's very interesting, you know, where you you talk about these things and, you know, certainly insecurity happens on all these different levels and ways and, you know, you you kind of got a reputation, I think, for <laughs> speaking up because, I mean, you had a lot going on. I, you know, you you really had this ability to to be in tune and to perceive your surroundings and perceive what needed to be done. And and you know, not only did you have that ability, but you were very young because you went into the priesthood at a very young age. So you had, you know, I would imagine a, 
a lot of these people who are much older <laughs> thinking, who's yeah. this kid I, I, telling us what to I do? Thought, <laughs> I personally thought that what helped me to work in that area was an early understanding of what my role is or was in the situation. <coughs> Excuse me. I looked at myself as a shepherd, as a leader, and uh, the parish community were like my flock, my congregation. So as a leader, if they were suffering, I had to be with them. And I couldn't leave them. And then if there were situations in which I did not have answers to them, and since I believed that I was representing God in that environment, I had to pray, meditate, reflect, and try to get some guidance. I remember there was an attack on Pagule town. This was actually the worst attack. This was on the 10th of October, 2003. So close to 15 people were killed, several injured, close to 400 were abducted. So the following, because the attack began in the morning, at around midday, people began to run away from the town, you know? They would just enter trucks, lorries, and leave. And then, if you ask them, where are you going? They had nothing to begin with a livelihood somewhere else, but they were just running away. So close to 18,000 people managed to run away. So about maybe over 10,000 remained. But the level of panic, tension was so much. And of course, one thing people take for granted in life is sleep. In a war situation, because people live under so much stress, tension, and fear, people don't sleep. Most of the time, people are awake. If a dog wants to take a nap, the best time is during the day because most attacks take place in the night. But even there is no guarantee. So because of attention always. So we're almost in constant tension for like two to three weeks. And I was asking, what do, what do we need to do as leaders? And a lot of the politicians, civil leaders, most of those who could run away left the place. So I went to the barracks and met the, the, and the captain who was in charge of the soldiers. Then I told Mr. Gentleman, the other time this place was attacked, you protected it. You protected the place. But I think that you need to go and talk to the people. Tell them that they, they are okay. They will be protected. You know, you are there for them. 
because in my understanding was the major problem was lack of that self-confidence. So people needed some psychological peace to be restored in them. So this soldier asked me one of the most fascinating questions. He said, Father, do you really want to help me? I said, I do. Then, then he said, okay, if that's the case, I would like you to call the local leaders left and write a letter to the army commander. Talk about what has taken place here, the attack, the killings, the displacement, the fear, and ask the army commander that you want more soldiers and weapons in this place. You want, you, in fact, you want the two times, two third times. And he told me, he said, Father, I cannot do it because I am just a captain. That guy is a lieutenant colonel. If I ask him myself, he will instead blame me that I am panicking. I am panicking. I'm not in control. I lack self-confidence. But if you do it as leaders and copy these letters to all the different leaders in the government, they'll respond. We wrote that letter, we distributed, distributed the letter to the different leaders, and in one week we had two tanks come. The day when the military tanks were coming to town, people got out like they were welcoming, welcoming them in joy. And that was that day, because the tanks were there, that is when people began to have a normal sleep feeling that they were safe again. And then during the day, what the soldiers did was they would drive the tanks around, you know, just to give us that psychological peace that we were safe. In fact, that is one of the experiences that whenever I talk about, I am amazed. When I returned to Uganda after three years in this country, I met a gentleman who came to me in excitement and said, Father, that town, if you are not there, and a few of the leaders, that place would have been deserted during wartime. You know, there's, there's so many pieces there in what you said, and I think one of the big pieces was to realize how much the people needed to have a sense of peace. And I look at that today, and even though people go through their busy lives appearing uh, like all is okay, life is good, and in many ways it is, particularly here in the States, um, people are still in need of that peace. They're still in need of knowing... Yes, um, all over the world, wherever that is, they need to know that they're safe. They need to know that they're peace, uh, that there's peacefulness to be had in this world. Because I think for a lot of people, they get into these spirals and they run around in the mouse wheel, as we say, uh, and they they don't feel that. You know, they don't feel that with what's going on in their in their lives. And I think. 
we're in those times again, just like the Great Depression, just like the war times that you lived through, where people need to know they can have some peace. Uh, so I think that that is just gigantic, and you know your orchestration to get them what they needed to um, get in what was needed for the parish, and and um, you know really an amazing in a lot of ways, but you brought up a piece in that about confidence and um, having to stand in that confidence, which is another huge lesson for us, you know, not only to realize how important peace is in our life, but that confidence can make or break what we get and what we're able to accomplish in our lives. And and that was in my observation as a civilian and not a soldier. And one thing I noticed was war is about confidence. You know? It is like the one who who, who looked more confident, you know, took the day. You know? So a lot was who can make people believe in him or her, you know. Now, if, like, government were able to show that they were confident, they were in charge, people took them to be winning, you know. If the rebels, you know, could not come across that they were in charge of the situation, they were seen to be losing the war. So that was something that I always noticed, you know. What both sides wanted to portray what was going on. And and this is a big reason why, you know, a couple of things. I mean, why the people who are in charge are in charge <laughs> because of that oh, confidence. Yes. And mm-hmm. it's also a great lesson for us to realize that if we're going to get a message out into the world, if we're going to have an impact in the world, we've got to carry that very high level of confidence. If you say people are going to follow who is really confident, whatever side they're on. And, you know, because even if they know it's wrong, there's a certain amount of security in that level of confidence. It's like the salesperson that comes up and says, you're going to buy this. And you do. (laughs) (laughs) And then you do, right? It's, it's yeah. the same kind of aspect, and I keep thinking, you know, man, if our spiritual people out there, our spiritual leaders, carried that same level of confidence uh, in what they do, what a difference that would make in our world. And I think that that is, and you can't, you can't. Uh, you can't underestimate that power. And I, and it's, I think also maybe why when people are trying to gain control who are, let's say, not nice people, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. that that's one of the first things that they attack without us even knowing it. They, they oh, yes. bring up our fears, therefore they shake our confidence and our sense of peace. And then they've got control. So uh, I think that's a big, big, 
thing for us to pay attention to. And what you're sharing, again, is just a sample of what you have in your book, but it's a great example of how these lessons transfer over <laughs> from that war zone environment to our everyday life. They're so important. Now, and, Robert, I remember... Oh, go ahead. And one of the things also I wanted to talk, which I talked about in the book was the impact of war on the lives of individuals. You know, a lot of the people in my parish at the time were displaced and they lived in the camps. So there was not, there was very little food. The, we have this United Nations organization that brought food. They brought some corn, some beans. But it was, they came once, once in two months. But what they brought was not enough to sustain a family of eight for, two, for more than three weeks. So there was a situation in which people were constantly in need, constant need of what to eat, what to drink, that was never enough. And it was something which I would see because the food was not enough, but I had not really had an experience of that, of what that would have on character, how it would impact somebody that would have enough always. So when I celebrated my birthday on the 28th, of course, that is the 28th of December, 2003, I said, I made up my mind to go and surprise, take a surprise for the children. So I bought several packets of sweets. I knew they would like them. And so in the camp, they were close to maybe like 700 or more children. So I had plenty of sweets. Then I identified about five ladies, five. And then I asked these ladies to help me to distribute the sweets. So like for one lady, I would get like five, six packets, you know. So when it came to time for the distribution, when the distribution was to start, these ladies who were like in the early 20s, they ran away with the sweets. Running away, running away. I could not believe I just wondered, I said, I thought somebody who's around 20 years old providing or sharing or looking after the interests of a child should be a no-brainer. They ran away with the sweets. I was shocked. Then what happened was the children who were there began to run after them, you know. It was like uh, a swarm of bees following the sweets. And they were grabbing, tearing the packet. I was so scared that the child could have been stepped or run over in a stampede. But fortunately, that did not happen. So the few children who were there, who were left with me, got closer to me, asking me now to distribute the little that I was having left with me. Then I would tell them, I said, please, line up so that I can distribute to you. 
And when I, whenever I would tell them to line up, they will not believe in me anymore. They will not trust me that they will get the truth. Instead, they kept on getting clothes. I just began to feel unsafe. So I asked some other person who was near. I said, please come to me. You know? And they came. I said, please, can you escort me out of the camp here? And I told the children that I would come back another day to receive the sweet. So I could not give them the sweet because of that experience. So that was really coming face to face, seeing how war, seeing how people who are constantly in need and never have enough, and how that, that lack impacted their lives. And this is this is such a another important factor that you're bringing up because you know when you look at America, and I'm not saying everywhere because certainly the homeless, for example, population has been growing over recent years. But uh, you know most people in America do not have that experience of being in need, truly in need. You know, maybe they have uh-huh. to give up their, you know, Starbucks or their dinner out every week or <laughs> something, but I don't consider uh-huh. that truly in need like somebody who has not had food for a couple of weeks or, you know, doesn't know where their next meal is coming from or doesn't mm-hmm. have access to going to even, say, a soup kitchen. I mean, even the homeless here have soup kitchens they can go to. Um, and, you know, most people don't have that experience. And like you say, and and it's not just the need on the physical level, but it's the need, you know, as we've touched on, for security, for love, for, um, you know, knowing that, that it's somewhere, you know, there's there's going to be uh, an end. There's a need for peace in there, and um, so th- this is this is really huge. And yes, uh, we wonder, you know, how can somebody be so barbaric? How can they be so this way? Well, when you're without and you're deprived, it's it's a natural reaction to. Um, you know, overcompensate by trying to, you know, hoard and take what you can uh, from everything and to get as much as you can uh, when something is offered because you never know when you're going to get something again. And that kind of leads oh, me to... Oh, that is to, true. <laughs> yeah. And that kind of leads me to an aspect that you brought out in your book, too, where you manage to remain very calm a lot of time uh, in this constant war condition. And uh, at least uh, to the reader, it seems like you were (laughs) able to remain calm. But I remember one incident that you were talking about in your book uh, where you were trying to kind of uh, leave the building in the night sort of thing and um, you've gone through some fields and you were barefoot and your feet were <laughs> getting chopped up pretty bad and as you're going through and you had a couple other people with you, 
you ended up with a gun pointed to your head. So I'm hoping well, maybe you can shed yeah. some light with that experience. You know, we, of course, when we are, that was on the 23rd of January 2003. So the LRA rebels had been attacked in different places, you know. And so this time, they came to attack the parish. And uh, I would like to share with you again the events of the morning. In the morning, some ladies came to me. She had been a member of the parish there for close to 30 years or 40 even. Then I told her, I said, you see, I'm having a strange feeling. Something tells me that the rebels will come to attack this place the coming days. And most likely I'll be captured and be made to walk several miles on foot. That was like premonition. The evening the attack takes place. So we had close to a hundred elder rebels come to the parish. Some were fighting with the soldiers in the barracks. Some were looting the town. So when they come, came to the parish, they began stepping, bang on the door very violently, saying, Father, open the door for us. If you do not open, we shall kill you. So since I knew they were in charge of the place, I shouted with full command, a lot of telling them, please do not step on the door I'm coming to open. So the rebels or LRA, they used the command. So they stop and they come and open the door. Now, when I opened the door, I believe I made a mistake. I should have asked them, you guys, what do you want? I kind of retreated to my quiet self. They looked at me. Then somebody shouted, who are you? Then I wondered, I said, what, what, what do I tell them? Because they could have been hearing that I, I said bad things about them, or that the campaign, or maybe I'm, I'm in, you know, partisan or I've taken sides. So I told them I'm Father Obor. The common name people called me that was Father Robert, or the young priest. So, what is so? But when I told them I'm Father Ball, they couldn't connect to a name that had because priests often are not very many. So they have an idea who is a priest in a place. So they shouted, sit down. I sat down. So then they asked me if we did have a communication system because we use, we use what they call a radio call. I describe what a radio call is in the book. Then they ordered me to get up. I couldn't believe. As they're ordering me to get up, there were gunshots taking, firing all over the compound. I'd, I'd, it was my first experience in life to get up while guns were being fired. And I noticed that I could not even walk straight. I was panicking so much. So one of these rebel soldiers, because all, all those I saw were rebel soldiers, they were maybe between like 12 to 15 years old. One of them wanted to kick, my, kick me down, but he missed my 
my food. So then I got the, the place of the radio call. The communication system, they take it. So when they take it, a lot of them come in the house. I could see they could, like, the curtains, anything they could get, they were taking, 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 taking. Then they asked to get up to take them to the stores of the parish, the small store where we kept things. Then as I got up, there was, like, somebody fired a mortar from the parish going to the barracks. The building shook. I nearly fell down. I trembled. Then one of them came and pointed pointed into my face and said, Father, for us, we do not tolerate cowards. We just kill them. I couldn't say anything. I just kept quiet. Then I went to the kitchen. But there was not much they could get there. Then we went behind the rectory. And I was now calm. All everyone who was there was actually rebel and looting something. Some wanted to break into the parish car and set it ablaze just to destroy it. Then from nowhere I picked courage. I said, You man, don't burn my car. That car belongs to me. My work here as a priest is to help people. If you burn that car, I will not be able to do it. Respect it. He didn't burn, he respected it. Then I asked them, I said, who is your leader? They did not answer my question. Then as I was standing there, a young man who was about like 12 years, he came, he got his gun, placed it facing my chest, chest and holding the trigger. And said, if you say anything now, I will shoot you. And I was certain that he was going to do it. And, of course, I understood the psychology of a lot of these child soldiers. Because I was a priest in the community, I was taken as somebody prominent. So shooting and killing me would be like something would put it on his TV. So, oh, you see, I was the one who killed the priest. It would be something for him to brag about. I kept quiet. I didn't talk. And then he told me, said, you have survived. Then I said, I have to leave the company of these people. Because I knew that I could not even walk because at that time I was bare feet. So as the rebels were looting, they got information that plenty of corn had been discovered in one of the stores that was used by the Catholic charities. So they ran that way. And then I was alone. Then I began to move, going like eastwards. Then I ran. Then from there, I ran into the pig style because I had a couple of pigs in the parish. Then I jumped over the wall. And that is how I got out of the parish. And then I left the rebels just by themselves. And that was the beginning of the night of drama again. And, I mean, just unbelievable because, you know, I, I know that we've got enough people who have been to war, but even out of those that have been to war, 
there's there's not very many people who have been face to face with a gun on their chest, face to face with a gun to their head, lying in pain, uh, and you know understanding that psychology of their thought and their belief. Obviously, was a very uh, big asset in in your situation, and I think I think what amazes me is in the midst of all of this that was going on, how you managed to keep such a clear head, and I think that that is a huge lesson as well for people that it's so easy for us to get distracted and panicked and wound up in the circumstances and the situation that is going on in our life that we don't keep a clear head. And, uh, and I also, in fact, I have not this in my book. One of the things I speak about was the importance of making a good judgment. You know? And in fact, there are certain judgments that I made and I regret up to today. I remember after I'd run up, left, escaped from the rebels. So I jumped over the wall. I was still much younger than today. So I jumped over the wall. Then I meet, then as I'm running, some four men, they see me. They thought I was the headmaster of the local school. But then, when, when I introduced myself, oh, I said, Father, please lie down here where we are. So I lay down. There was not much grass at that time because that was January in northern Uganda. The grass, the sun is very hot, so it burns most the grass. And then because there are certain farming practices also, that the people burn the grass for the new planting season. So, so when we lay four rebels, in fact, some rebels were looting the parish and the area, but also there were some actually who were guarding the area or the site where the looting was taking place. So these rebels come. It looked like they were passing guys, but then they saw us. In fact, when they saw us, they were amused and they were sarcastic as well. They asked, you guys, do you think really that you are hiding where you are? This is what they asked us. For sure, we did not have much camouflage with the grass. And at that time, even answering the question was hard. So one person just said, vaguely, so you see, when this thing started, when this place, so this is where we're caught up. So I'd like to cut this story short here. So after this, the encounter with this, these rebels, we did not feel safe because another group was going to come and get us here. So because I was so afraid, 
there was a nearby mango tree. This was around like nine in the night. I decided to climb the tree <coughs> because I was afraid that the rebels who were moving the compound could get me. But when I look back, what I regret is, if at all, there were gunshots, or if the fighting had to resume, or gunshots were fired, most likely a bullet would have got me on top of the tree. That is something which I regret up today. And I thought it was a terribly bad judgment that I made because I was panicking. Well, and, and you know, and it is interesting how we go through this, and it's it's great for you to have, share these stories because, you know, when we do get wrapped up in that panic, we don't make good decisions from that space. Uh, you know, and when you're in a war zone, you don't have that flexibility to go, hey, just give me a couple of days or a week to think about it, and I'll get back to you. <laughs> you know? Oh, yes, that's true. <laughs> you know, and you, you've got two seconds. Yeah, one doesn't have plenty of time to think about anything. It just happens. <laughs> and and you know when and oftentimes what's interesting though, it kind of comes full circle back to what we talked about. If we tune in for that split second and go, how am I feeling about this? Or how am I feeling mm-hmm. if I say yes? How am I feeling if I say no? Um, and, and we can process that actually very quickly in a matter of seconds. And if we if we do that, we can come from good judgment. Um, but yeah, under those conditions, I mean, most people have a hard time deciding. You know, should I get a latte or a frappuccino today? <laughs> you know, oh, that's very true. Making a decision, you know, with a gun to their head and whether I should climb a palm tree at 9 o'clock at night. <laughs> oh, yes. And the, one of the things also, you know, like when we hear about war, many times we hear reporting. Five people were killed, people, whatever. You know, you hear a lot of numbers and figures. A lot of it is you hear statistics. And I, from that time I lived in that place, I believe that in a war situation, there are a lot of unsung heroes, you know? People who should be given medals for their conviction. Are the noble things they do? I remember one time I met uh, a shopkeeper. I said, I said, you man, you see, the roads are so unsafe. You keep on traveling. And almost every week here on, on these roads here, it is like every time you travel, you, you increase the risk or the threat in your life. Then he turned to me and said, Father, you look, look at this town. People need soap. Soap, they need salt, and other supplies. They have to leave. 
without the risk I'm taking, this town will come like to a standstill. I also, as a family man, have a wife, have children to feed and to send them to school. It is still this, this risk that I'm able to fulfill my obligation as a parent. When I had that, then I said, okay, I won't question what he does. And that is, I believe that is some of the things that motivate people in a war environment. Some of the things that you find, they lose their lives. But when they lose their lives, I believe, or the men who lose their lives, it is because they are motivated by something normal, something big, something that they see that it is essential. It's interesting to hear you talk about that. And, um, you know, again, unless you're in those kind of conditions, it can be a little hard for some people to relate to. But I think we can still relate to that concept of, you know, how many people gave up their lives to try to keep the family safe or to protect others along the way. And as you say, there's a lot of unsung heroes, and it's not the people that are just, so to say, on the battle lines, but it's the people like yourself who were keeping other people together with a clear head. It was the average family who made it through day in and day out of things. And it amazes me after reading your book, um, just your your disposition, your um, ability to to come through as clear as you have, and I think it's such a great inspiration because so many times people are fed this programming to be a victim because they've been in war or experienced those conditions. Um, and I'm not, you know, diminishing what they've been through by any means, but you're such a great example of somebody who has been there, has gone through these experiences, and has come out um, in a good space overall. <laughs> That's what I would say, in a good space mentally, emotionally, and I'm sure you still have flashbacks and things like that. And I guess I would ask you to maybe share with our listeners um, maybe one of the biggest impacts of living in that lifestyle that it had on you. You know, what what did it hit you? You see, one, what hit me most was As I, I live in that environment, for the most part, the violence never stopped. It never stopped. Like 
if we had an attack today, after a week or more, something would happen. If the parish was attacked, I went to have a vacation for seven weeks somewhere because I needed it. I came back. The day I was traveling back to the parish, the vehicle that was ahead of us was actually attacked by the rebels and two people were killed. So I got out of the parish with the purpose of going to relax, get some of the trauma out of my system. But in the process of traveling back to the place, I got it back. And I could have been somebody dispirited, angry, demoralized. But one thing I found that was the source of my strength was being able to reflect, pray about what that particular event meant to me. When the rebels attacked the parish and I was lying in deep in the bushes, I asked myself, I said, God, why are you doing this to me? I'm just a priest for one year and a couple of months. Why should I lose my life under such circumstances? <clears throat> that was the question I asked myself. But after a week, I began to look at this life circumstance differently. Because <clears throat> I remembered that as the priest, a lot of people would come to tell me, said, Father, last night we were attacked in our home. And uh, we have to leave the, our house, sleep in the bush. Some people were abducted. Those were stories that I had. But the attack on the parish was my first experience of being displaced from the house, even if I lived through this time in the war all my life. So it gave me a distinct and intense experience of what my people were going through. And I felt that it was important that as a shepherd that I knew, I understood whenever they brought up this matter to me. And uh, as I said that after the attack on the parish, I took some vacation. On the day I was returning, the vehicle ahead of me was hit. Then I sat in the parish and asked myself, so now, what kind of workplace is this? that a vacation means nothing. I've just come back. 
what I was to get away briefly, I got it back. Nobody asked me in the parish about how my vacation was, but they were instead asking me about the vehicle ahead of us that was shot, and some was, were telling me that God, in fact, had protected me. So I reflected on this again, and I really, I come to the conclusion, I said, I've been all this time taking risks in this place. I come to the conclusion that if the little things I'm doing, God believes, God sees that I am making a difference in the place. I came to the conviction that even if the place was filled with minefields, so long as God saw that I had a purpose, he was going to get, keep me safe. And that changed the way I would look at I looked at things. I said, I will not dwell on the past, but I will look on I look ahead. I think that those are such great lessons and, and I think too many people get stuck dwelling on that past, they get stuck in that experience. Um, I see that with a lot of war deaths, for example, that they get stuck in that experience. And uh, two key things that I, I also heard in there were reflection and prayer. And in that, there's so many other bigger pieces <laughs> because mm-hmm. of realizing that, well, if God sees me or divine or whatever term somebody wants to use, uh, sees me as worthy to survive this, then, you know, how could I be of greater value than if, <laughs> if God has seen me because, that value? Because, because, see, like, for me, I thought that prayer time and that moment of reflection, whenever... I was able to sit down and to develop some meaning, you know, some value. It was, it helped me to what I call like have closure, you know, instead of uh, being angry or, you know, so so long as I, I, I saw that, okay, there was meaning to what I had gone through, you know. And, that is the big and yeah, and and that is I think it, had, it that was that helped me to go through that helped me to have closure, you know, and uh, and I think that is why you find even like as I write my book, I have lessons and insights, you know. I think that you just summed it up so well right there, (laughs) of closure. Most people do not get closure when they've been through their own personal war zone, whether that is a little war zone of being in a war area like you, whether that is serving uh, on one of the troops, or whether that is being in an abusive situation or whatever it is. And that closure, I think, is a lot of 
a huge thing. And, of course, the prayer also brings in forgiveness and gratitude and some of these other big pieces. You know, we don't have a lot of time left here, Robert, but I would love for you to, to kind of quickly share with us what it was like after growing up your entire life in this war zone and going through all you went through with being at the parish and this rapid advancement that you went through in the priesthood. What was it like when all of a sudden they said, we're going to put you on a plane and send you to America? (laughs) And now all of a sudden you're not going to be in this war zone anymore. You know, coming to the United States was, I think, it, when I was told that I was to come to the United States, it was like a shock to me. You know, that was when the life was hard. But the relationships we had built was very strong. And for me, working as a priest in that place, I wasn't called Father Robert or Father Obor. My title was, they called me our priest. Even when I was made pastor, okay, the big title in Catholic circles, but I was called pastor only for one day. People call me our priest, and even up to today, just because they saw me be with them, go through the hardships we are going through together. So when I was told that I'm from the United States, I did not even know the biggest challenge was how do I tell people that I'm leaving them in this environment. My mother always prayed for me to be saved. And when she heard that I was coming to the United States, she said, Father, I believe that God is answering my prayer. My son, every day I'm tense because you're serving that place. When I met my bishop, my bishop said, you see, you're still a young man. There's a lot you can do for people in the future. So I had to take time for this to sink in me to make sense of what this coming United States would mean for me, really. Then I go to the embassy. You know, the the visa process. It was so cumbersome. I got the visa to come. And I remember we went to as a group to Rome in 2002. But my flight to the United States, that was the longest flight I had. I traveled by myself. And as I sat in the plane for hours, because Uganda to the United States is almost like 23 hours, and I kept on asking myself now, why Am I doing all this traveling? I told myself, I must be going really for serious business where I'm going. (laughs) So 
So then I arrived in Newark, you know. That was, Newark was like a shock to me. Because <laughs> I come, come from a country in which almost, almost 99.9 is just, is what, is black. So to find myself among people who are just, everybody looked a white person around me, that was just a shock to me. Culture shock. <laughs> that, that and then shock. Never would, yeah, everybody being white around me. And then when I would talk, I thought I spoke English. They hardly understood me. So, you know, it was, it was like I have to repeat myself. People would ask me, what are you saying, you know. So that was that kind of experience. Then, because we were landing in Cleveland, so I got out of Cleveland Airport. A priest from my diocese who had been in the U.S. for two years came to pick me. Then, I was going to drive from Cleveland now to Canton, Ohio. Another culture shock was the sizes of the roads. I've never had the experience of seeing a road of like four lanes. You know? And the cars, the way the, the, the fast, the speed of the cars are moving, I, I always complain and told the priest that, hey, Father, it looks like the car behind us is going to knock ours. <laughs> you know? It, I think it was, it was a, my travel to the United States, it's something that, uh, or coming here, I did not expect, you know. But still, I look at it in uh, God's plan, part of God's providence, you know. I think uh, I'm a better person. I've been able to learn, to get some experience, you know. But above all, by my country, United States, they get more time to reflect, look at what I went through more clearly. You know, and able and to be able also to share it with many people, and like I'm doing today with you on your radio. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you here, and I can just imagine that whole culture shock if any of us were suddenly dropped into a group of people with a different skin color and <laughs> a whole different way of of being. That that talk would just be amazing, but Robert, we're we're having to wind down here for today. I want to thank you so so very much for your time and the sharing and lessons and what you've created. I highly highly recommend that people pick up your book, um, Life and Lessons from the War Zone. They can get it on Amazon.com. I'm also right after the show, we'll have it um, put up on. My website, uh, I have a section of um, there for guest products, and we'll get your book put up on there as well so they can access it either place uh, that they choose to do so. And um, and it goes right through Amazon either way, so it's easy for them to access that. And, again, they can get both of you through LinkedIn or Facebook, uh, the social media areas. And, um, again, just thank you so much. For being here. And thank you very much for having me today. Our pleasure. 
And next week here on Activating Conversion Radio, we're going to be having Erica Tucci with us, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, and she's going to be sharing her work in surviving cancer and addiction. And that's going to be really interesting because we're going to be looking at the pattern of addiction as well as um, her work with yin energy, yin being Y-I-N. So that's going to be a very interesting show. And, uh, again, you can check out any of the events that I have going on. I am going to be adding stuff. I'm in a little bit of a transition period right now. There's going to be a lot of stuff getting added around the Sea Falls area. But I will have some... Uh, events going on in some other areas this fall as well. So watch for those. And you can connect with all of my work through Jesse and Nichols George, the number one dot com. Uh, all kinds of things that you can take advantage of on my website from monthly video tips to monthly specials that are on there. Um, July special is short coaching sessions for uh, $15 for 10 minutes, $30 for 20 minutes. You can take advantage, find out about that. Again, Jesse Ann Nichols George, the number one dot com. We do have several shows here on Main Street Universe throughout the week. Monday nights, well, actually, several of our guests are kind of, or our hosts right now, are kind of on a little bit of a hiatus. <laughs> the, the main show that we have going on besides Activating Compassion right now is um, Susan Weed on Tuesdays, and she's uh, doing a segment that she's been doing for a while. She's talking about 13 sacred trees. And then Wednesdays is our flagship show. Uh, oftentimes that's staffed with Darren Bucera, who's a reader at Madame Laveau in New Orleans. So we're going to be having Kevin Baird on. You might remember him. He was one of our regular hosts for quite a while. And we're going to be having him on later on this month as well. So lots of good things. If any part of the show cuts off, which it might to the live listeners, given our time, uh, you will be able to catch uh, the full part of it through the archives, which, again, are available at this same link. Uh, immediately following the show, and you know, make sure you share this because wow, what a what a wonderful set of stories and lessons and insights to be given today. And people can also catch the show um, uh, through iTunes, TuneIn.com, and again uh, through the YouTube version, which I hope to have put up in a few days. It can take me as long as two weeks, but rarely does it ever take that long for me to do. Also, thank you very much to everybody who's been listening today, not only on Blog Talk, but those streaming live through Penn, known as Parent Encounters Network, Streamfinder, and Talk Streamlight. <coughs> and, you know, I just want to mention, hey, I look forward to seeing you back here next week as we delve more into activating compassion. And don't forget, if you've enjoyed the show today, share it with others. It's going to be available, like I said, at all those different options, the same link even in our archives. And I'm going to leave you with the song Yearning For, also known as Over and Over by Shemshai. Thank you so much, and I look forward to seeing you again next week right here on Activating Compassion Radio. May you enjoy the rest of your weekend and have a truly amazing week. And if I could see what makes me blind I would soar to the edge of my mind And to touch what seems unreal just to show you the way that I feel And we are in time with time One with the season of change inside And we are in tune with the tune Caught in a balance of sun and moon 
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.